Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today, as countless young people take a climate strike to the world's streets, we ask whether it's Australia's leaders that need to go back to school or whether our parliamentarians have been brainwashed from decades of manufacturing doubt. Plus, big business sounds a warning, and we ask whether Pauline Hanson's parliamentary inquiry has already been compromised by Pauline Hanson. That's frying up on today's Democracy Sausage. G'day there, I'm Mark Kenny, and thanks for gathering with us at the ANU Barbecue, where each week we bend the stale bread of inquiry around the high-fat, awful tube of public affairs, all in a bid to make it palatable. Joining me this week are Mark Evans from the wonderful Museum of Australian Democracy, of course, based in this fine city in our old Parliament House. Mark, glad to have you along. Oh, it's great to be here, Mark. And Brendan McCaffrey from the University of Canberra. Terrific to have you in our humble policy forum studio here, Brendan, in, of course, the prestigious uh, Crawford School of Public Policy. Very happy to be at my old alma mater. Thank you, Mark. And I'm also delighted to introduce Annika Ferguson from ANU's College of Law. Thanks for coming along, Annika. It's a pleasure to be here, Mark. Thank and you've you. driven some distance to get here from Cooma, I believe. Yes, lovely morning drive yeah. <laughs> to get here. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cold today, actually. Mm. Um, I want to cover a few things this week. Naturally, the soap opera of Brexit is always uh, worth a, a comment or two. And Scott Morrison's amazing, awesome White House adventure, replete with a fully formed <laughs> Oval Office press conference, wherein the president casually floated the idea of a nuclear war again. <laughs> and there's a new and I would argue politically compromised parliamentary inquiry into the family law system amid claims of falling public confidence in its function. But first, let's go to an element running underneath all of these stories, and that is declining public confidence in authority, in our politics, in institutions and so forth. We've talked about it before, but this is an area which uh, both Mark and Brendan in particular have, uh, um, you know, have some quite considerable research expertise. Mark Evans, you spoke last week at a Philanthropy uh, Australia conference here in Parliament House. In fact, I spoke at the same conference. I was just wondering, what was the thrust of the of the comments you made there? Because I heard very good reports from uh, from others who were there that uh, you know, your comments were your your presentation was um, had particular impact with uh, the gathered people there. Um, what a week's a long time in politics, as you know, Mark. <laughs> um, but um, uh, look, the argument that I was making was that in in times of declining trust in, in political institutions, um, it's really important that um, Australian citizens don't abrogate their responsibility for these problems. Um, what we need is a good dose of active citizenship to mm. to, to pull us through. I uh, guess you're talking to a, to a group of people who in many cases are, are converts to this. I mean, they're not all philanthropists in the room, but they're representing philanthropic organizations in some cases, charities and so forth. So they're, they're, this is a, a group of people who are pretty interested in the way they can contribute to society. Yeah, sure. But, um, you know, we've, we've had this period of declining trust that's been going on for some time now, but it's not really dipped into direct action or increased protest potential so much. 
Um, so in other words, th there seems to be a, a climate of complacency within the context of declining trust. Mm. Um, so, so my, and we're, we're very, very quick to, to demonize um, particular groups or people. So, for example, the Lowy Institute last week were demonizing young people, basically saying that they were apathetic and they weren't interested in, in democracy. Well, um, the work that we do suggests that that's just bonkers. It's just that they don't like the democratic politics that are being played out in, in, in the federal parliament. They like politics. They like democracy. They don't like that type of politics and that type of democracy. Yeah, it's an interesting idea, isn't it? Because th this is a sort of a, a, an argument we've heard a bit since some of that research has come out showing that there is that lack of trust, particularly in, mm. in, in younger voters, about the way our democratic system functions or doesn't function, fails to function. Mm. This has been interpreted that young people don't remember what it was like in a period, in a world before there was democracy and therefore they're, you know, they're less inclined to kind of see it in those comparative terms. Uh, also, the criticism that Young people are more interested in engaging in sort of clicktivism or you know activism via online than they are actually involved in you know putting their themselves physically on the line. Of course, there's, there's no evidence of that in Hong Kong at the moment, is there? Mm. Uh, there's plenty mm. of uh, plenty of people putting their bodies on the line there. So you're you're just arguing with both of those narratives and saying, well, in fact, young people are involved and they are interested in contributing. It's just that it happens now in different ways. Yeah, they're doing democracy differently. That's exactly it. Um, now, the, the big question is how can you harness that activism and, and energy? And we know, for example, that political parties aren't very good at harnessing that activism and energy. We know that our federal parliament isn't very good at harnessing and, and – um, Is that because those parties and, those, and the parliament doesn't – they just don't look like – the population of young people now, the, the diversity just isn't there and, and it, it, it looks to be self-serving as an institution, that is the parliament, for example? Well, there's definitely a representation issue. There's no doubt about that. Um, I mean, they can't see themselves in the, in the federal parliament. So we, at the moment, we're doing um, a survey at the Museum of Australian Democracy. As you know, we have 110,000 kids go through the museum every year and we're asking them how they would imagine a parliament of the future. Um, and there's a number of things that they come out with. The first one is um, we'd like to see more collaborative problem solving. We don't like this adversarial. They, they don't look as if they're bothered about the problems that we're confronting mm. and they're not focusing on problem solving. The second one was they, they want to participate more in their, in their democracy. The third one was that the parliament should be focusing on future proof, on, on future proofing their world, right? And it's focusing on short term issues and not long term issues. Um, so, and th these are really strong themes running through, through that research. Um, so that doesn't suggest uh, a generation that doesn't care about their democracy and doesn't care about the future. It very much does so. But we need to engage with them where they are, not where traditional politics is. Annika, is that your experience? Sorry, were you going to make a comment? Yeah, I was just going to say, and the, the perfect example of it is something we're going to be talking about, obviously, you've, you've mentioned, mm. Mark, in the, the climate strike. Mm. How many politicians came out and said, oh, they should be at school rather than, mm. you know, being actively engaged in politics? It's such a lame response, isn't it? You know, they <laughs> should be at school. Like, in the context of someone's education, the idea of uh, being involved in an afternoon event like this or whatever, or even if they lose a whole day of school, I mean, 
you know, really in the context of the whole education and given the weight of the issues and their buy-in, you know, their actual investment as young people in this issue going forward. I mean, it strikes me as such, a, if that's the best you can come up with, that, you know, they've compromised their education by being involved, it doesn't really say much for your, your depth of understanding or grip on the issue, does it? Well, absolutely <laughs> not. I mean, uh, I, well, I, I just think it's also, it's very difficult to have that contrary uh, opinion that young people are too apathetic to be engaged in politics, but they should be at school rather than engaging in politics. It's it's fundamentally uh, opposed to itself. Yeah, well, I mean, I um, am bought into this on on Twitter. Uh, we were just talking about this before we uh, started and uh, uh, made the point, you know, because there, there were a whole lot of people on the right of the political spectrum who were saying that these kids had been brainwashed. You know, they're brainwashed by uh, this argument about, uh, you know, climate change. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I asked the question, you know, why is it brainwashing to uh, to convey to uh, to uh, school children to to anyone really uh, indeed uh, what the uh, scientific consensus is about global warming, uh, but uh, well, the irony is we, we've just finished um, a survey of federal politicians, um, and one of the things that they're most concerned about is that they don't think that Australian citizens know enough about politics, right? And they want to improve the nature of civic education. Well, we saw an example of how they could do civic education, mm. <laughs> you know, yesterday. And yet they would be against, you know, they're, they're in, in public, they would be against that. In private, um, they're arguing, well, that's the type of understand. I mean, that's the type of political activism that we need to see more of. But is it that they want the students to be engaged in um, civic education or do they want the students to think the same way they think? They want the students to think yeah. the, same the same way, way they, they think. think. That's absolutely yeah. And is that yeah. what we're confusing, Annika, do you think, in a way? Like we, we're actually trying to – those of us who are lamenting the lack of engagement by young people or the, you know, the, in, in the democratic process, mm. are we perhaps confusing um, two things here? Essentially, we, we're seeing democracy in its very institutional form that we've grown up with. And they are evolving it. They're seeing it in, a, in, a, in an entirely kind of um, evolved way uh, and, and engaging in uh, public discourse in ways that we don't recognise. I think they're actually going back to a way of public yeah. discourse that used to be quite prevalent. Um, and in fact, the institution of democracy has moved away from that, mm. um, has moved in a different direction um, towards sort of the attainment of power for power's sake rather than for actually serving the people. Um, I was at the climate strike rally. My children wanted to go, so I took them. And I was astounded, well, I'm not surprised because of my work with the university students that I work with, but I was quietly impressed by how articulate, how certain, how educated these students were. Um, they have read the science. They have understood the implications for their future and they're angry mm. and justifiably so. And on top of that, they also know what they want. They mm. had a very clear list of demands and they weren't in fantasy land. They were, for example, suggesting that the solution to our – they want renewables um, – you know, 100% renewables by 2030. But they were saying that the government's role in that should be supporting those within the fossil fuel industry to have their jobs, you know, transitioned. transitioned. Yeah. So they weren't um, 
it seems to me that it's been so well thought through when they had to sit down and work out they had to get permissions for all of those um those rallies, then it was the students that did it. And when they wrote their placards, they wrote them on the back of politicians' placards that they'd mm. retrieved and recycled. Um, so to suggest that then they're apathetic is mm. extraordinary. There's all evidence to the contrary. Um, and yes, I'm really concerned that this idea that the civic education needs to happen is a suggestion that we should actually be brainwashing them in school to think the way that the politicians want us to think. Well, it's a very reductive uh, way of handling it as well, isn't it? I mean, yes. you say they're brainwashed and then that single word, you've essentially invalidated their, their whole argument. Uh, this is just the subject of some sort of, um, you know, kind of extremist uh, fundamentalism. They don't understand it. They're just a, a bunch of, you know, kids or automatons almost uh, mm. who are being manipulated by you know, evil lefties or whatever it is. Um, so the kids have got no agency. And it's not just kids who were, as you say, I mean, you were there, but mm. there were lots of uh, lots of people who were at these uh, climate rallies and that's been the case all around the world. Mm. Uh, in fact, it, w- here's an interesting question because it came in from Matthew Donlan on Twitter. And if you want to get to uh, come, uh, put questions to us, we're always keen to do that. And you can do that on uh, via Twitter at Apps Policy Forum or the Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod. And you can email us too at podcast at policyforum.net. And Matthew Donlan asks the question. He says, with our PM skipping the UN climate summit while meeting President Trump, back home hundreds of thousands of people attended the climate strikes. Will these strikes have an effect on the government? And what do these strikes mean for Australia's future more generally? So what, do you, what do you think, Brendan? Do you reckon they're going to have any impact on, on this government? Well, no. I mean, I think they've, they've made it very clear that uh, they don't want them to have any effect. That's, you know, it's been a strategy of pouring cold water on, uh, on the strikes, saying they're irrelevant. They're not, you know, proper strikes. They're just brainwashed children. Um, mm. I should add, I, I, wanted my son to go, but uh, he's only 13 months old, so I haven't been able to brainwash him effectively. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's pretty slack. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> get on it. Yeah, get on it. I hope he's like not ha- having disposable nappies or anything, or is he past that stage? Uh, he's not past that stage, I'm afraid. <laughs> but I think I think I his, his parents could probably be blamed for that. Yeah. <laughs> what What do you think, uh, Annika? Is is do you think that? I mean, if you look at some of the rhetoric that's coming from government, even the def- you know even the sort of uh, defensive rhetoric that we're hearing, saying, well, actually, there's record investment going into renewables and so forth. Perhaps that does suggest that the government is aware it's losing this argument in terms of public opinion. Um, So it's trying to justify what it's doing. But at the same time, Australia's emissions are actually going up. And the best argument the government can come up with to sort of explain that is that that's as a result of our record LNG sales and that our LNG sales are going to countries that would otherwise be burning coal, probably our coal, by the way, (laughs) but would be burning coal and therefore in global terms, even though our emissions are going up, we're helping to reduce the emissions of other countries that might be burning coal. That's the sort of argument we're getting from Angus Taylor. It's a lovely PR spin, isn't it? Um, well, it and, may have and, and some substance to yeah, it. Yeah, well. it may have some substance to it. It's it's just because you are it, this the solution to this issue. This you know, it is um, a existential crisis in essence, and that's not actually um, exaggerating the situation. Um, and that's what our students and our children already understand. And turning around and trying to explain to them what is being done to secure their future at this point is problematic. So you might be rec- uh, investing in renewables at record levels, 
but that is one thing. And this is not, that's not the, the <laughs> it's yeah. not the silver bullet that's going to fix all of the problems. What we need is a really concerted whole of government response that, not another inquiry, the, the evidence is all there, the submissions, the reports, everything is already there. It needs to be drawn together and it needs to be put into a, a whole of government response and that's all levels of government. That's you know, taking aside political parties. Yeah. yeah. I, I think also we need to have um, some way of of integrating the movements for, for change. So, um, so if there is a critique at the moment, it's that the politics of process is quite fragmented mm. um, and it needs orchestrating in a more effective way. And beyond Canberra, you know, the idea that we come to Canberra to protest, I think, is a little bit old fashioned now as well. I think we should be holding protests all over Australia on this on this particular issue. But I'm a little bit more optimistic on this because I think this is an obvious area where we can drag our politicians into the 21st century. Um, and we know that it's not just the, the, the climate change arguments that are really strong in relation to the science. The economic arguments mm. are really strong, yeah. right? So if we're talking about how can um, the Australian economy compete with the US economy, well, this is a classic example of where we can, but we need the, the investment. We need the, um, the, the commercial um, investment. And as you know, Australia is very, very good at coming out with the new technologies and the inventions but we're less good at finding the investment to support the development of, of these new technologies, whereas the US is much better at that. So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's about developing a holistic argument where, um, where we take the science seriously, but we, we win the war of ideas as well on solid economics and the restructuring of the Australian economy, which is, as you know, <laughs> You know, we should have been doing this sort of thing a decade ago. Yeah, I look. I, I'm. I pay your optimism there, although I'm. I'm pretty skeptical about it. I must say, well, you're paid uh, to be, Mark. Well, maybe, <laughs> but I've been there. You know, up in the press gallery covering this. You know, the political trails of this issue for so long. I've seen so many leaders on both sides of Parliament. Uh, you know, go over the cliff trying to to uh, involve themselves in this issue. It's been such a politically fraught. Uh, process um, and so you know and it, and it's and it's made me formulate this uh, what I call the the first law of political thermodynamics which is that no matter how slow the climate is changing the conservatives will always move a bit slower <laughs> you know they'll always move a bit slower than is required they're being get dragged kicking and screaming into this arguing all the way and 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 they've been in the process of of essentially manufacturing doubt, which is actually not that hard mm. to do. All you have to do is produce a few, you know, uh, rogue scientists, uh, uh, you know, studies, whatever. They don't have to be very credible. And you throw them into the mix. You say, well, the world's not actually warming, it's cooling. And, uh, you know, of course, there was the great flood of 1955 or the great, you know, bushfires of, you know, 1933 or whatever it was. And all of, you know, in some drought or whatever. And all of these things can then essentially that we see around us can just essentially be normalized. And that's really been the process. It's a very corrosive thing. And there are plenty of people in the coalition. Let's be frank about it. There are plenty of people in the coalition, the governing parties at the moment, and it would be the same in the UK. We know it. It's certainly the same in, in, in the US, in many polities, uh, where, where they do not accept the science or, or they decide for political reasons to, you know, the taxonomy of this issue is that if you're, if you're interested in the climate, 
it's an it's an issue of the left's preoccupation of the left. And while it's sort of caught in that in that grid, um, it seems to me that it's very difficult. But to it's interesting, get. isn't it, that despite the the chaos of Brexit, the UK have made very significant strides on in the emissions mm. area. That's mm. true. Um, and I think that it's one of the slight, few things they've actually done other than Brexit in the last is. three years. Yeah. yeah. So the, 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 and I, I look at from a historical perspective, I absolutely agree with your argument. Always takes much much longer to get to to the end game for for, for the for the range of reasons which you suggest. But there seems to be a twist in the tail in this this in this uh, in this area, which is um, the changing perceptions of the power. Of, of business, basically, and of business networks and business elites. And one of the most interesting things that I think has happened in Australian politics over the last six months is the fracturing of the relationship between the liberals and, and big business. And the very fact that you have politicians actually drawing attention um, to, to why, why is big business developing poli- political mm. ideas Right now, that is that is a very interesting development because if if we start to see the emergence of movements for change um, at the elite level, right, and we've seen professional elites now moving to change, and we're seeing business elites moving to change, you know, that's a snowball that becomes an avalanche. So yeah, that, that's the reason why I'm a little bit more optimistic yeah. than you, while accepting your your general argument. I, I think the other thing that's a, a difference mm. between Australia and the UK has been Australia's reliance on resources for its mm. economy, which the UK doesn't have to the, anywhere near the same extent. Mm. Uh, and so it's it's easier for Australian conservatives to stick with that line while that is still driving the economy. But there's also going to be a time when it's not driving the economy anymore uh, and it becomes much easier for a mainstream argument. I mean, I don't know exactly when this will be, but it becomes much easier for a mainstream argument for climate change to to actually uh, take hold within government. That's a really excellent point, I think. And we saw that play out in the election uh, that um, in, in the two big mining states, for example, it was much harder to prosecute their climate change argument. The argument itself was, you know, sort of political electoral kryptonite, really. Yeah. Um, and and so, you know, when you make that comparison between the UK and Australia, uh, for example, as you say, we, we have such a heavy reliance on exporting these fossil fuels, coal in particular. And so we have, we have self-interest here in arguing, in going slow. But it's also quite a legitimate issue, and this goes to a point Annika made before about, you know, um, how we manage the transition. This is where we need to be imaginative and adventurous, isn't it? It's where we need to be saying, okay, we need to change the economy. We need to change what these jobs are in these places. And that takes money. That takes investment. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. I um, saw a piece that uh, Will Hogan wrote during the week last week where he was arguing, unlike many economists who were saying that as we move into a surplus budget, we should be considering spending you know, the, the government should be putting money back into the economy to support growth. Uh, and others, you know, the conservative, more conservative position is that no, we should be, you know, building up a big surplus as a, as an insurance. And Hogan was arguing, no, in fact, what we ought to be doing is transforming the economy and being prepared to compensate the losers in that process quite quite actively in order to make it happen. And given that we always talk about the great reforms of the 80s and the 90s and and all of that, we can see what the political fallout from that was. But two decades on, three decades on, those reforms are still lauded because they were necessary. Well, there are reforms that are needed now 
that is the change, for example, to a clean energy economy. But there are going to be so many losers. I mean, if you work in Townsville or somewhere like that, you you know, you're not going to voluntarily um, well, give up your job and you don't want your house yeah. to suddenly be worth, you know, 30% of what it was. I, I was actually doing some focus groups in that part of the world um, a couple of weeks ago. And what was really interesting is the way in which the number of people who were on the focus groups that um, that, that basically um, that the government was pro-climate change. This government? This government was pro-climate change. As in pro-action on climate change. They were radical on climate change. Yeah. Right? That's that's what they... Well, that's the one nation line, I presume. Well, I think a lot of it is... Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. It's because of the poor public information that's going out there about these issues as well. I think there's a, that's a big issue here as well. But the actual argument that you're making um, was absolutely in keeping with, with their views because obviously we, we asked them how they might change their views on these issues and it was all about jobs. Yeah. yeah. Right? Well, I think it's one of the great forgotten uh, lessons of Australian politics that we talk about Pauline Hanson a lot. Pauline Hanson came about in 1996 mm. as a public figure. In the lower house, not in the Senate where she is now, in the seat of Oxley, it was the safest or second safest Labor seat in the country. It had been right. It had been Bill Hayden's seat. Um, and right at that time, the Labor had been in power for 13 years. Uh, Paul Keating was talking a lot in visionary terms about the big picture, about the opportunities of in Asia, you know, living in Asia rather than seeking security from it, all those sorts of things. It was all it was all very you know encouraging and lots of people in the inner cities liked it and everything else. But there were plenty of people who were caught in the hinge point of that economic transition. And in Ipswich, in uh, you know uh, the, the industrial centre of Oxley, that the seat, there were plenty of people who were thinking, "Well, this shiny new future doesn't seem too shiny to us." Mm. You know, mm. we, we're seeing our factories closed. We've got our kids unemployed. We're unemployed. Uh, you know, housing values have, have collapsed. You know. And these people, blue collar people, walked away from Labor in that in that election. Mm. They, they 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 voted for Pauline Hanson as a sort of a protest. Who, by the way, was a disendorsed Liberal candidate. She'd mm. been disendorsed for some comments she made on you know some racist comments she'd made. And suddenly you had this sort of bizarre circumstance where where this person was elevated to the federal parliament and you know made various incendiary comments after that. And we've mm. you know we've seen her in subsequent iterations, but. There's a there's a lesson. This is politically volatile stuff, well, and there Trump are real was doing people. Exactly the same thing in this morning at the paper mill in Ohio. Yeah, that's it. That was exactly the same type of populist politics, wasn't it? Yeah. But it's not. Yeah, okay. But I, what, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's in, you know there's there's that there are real people at the heart of this as yeah. well. There are mm. people whose whose communities and jobs absolutely. Uh, you know, but there's examples around collapse. the world that it doesn't need to be this way. I mean, Germany and the rural valley they managed to. Get rid of their mining, um, <laughs> you know, um, reliance on mining in there. I mean, they fought wars over <laughs> there, and they've managed to close down all of those mines without actually sacking any workers. 
and they've done it over a period of time. Um, and it took political will, but it took, you know, understanding that you did have to transition and that you had to work with the people in that process. Um, it seems that I think it comes back to your comments that, about the students saying what they want to see in their their parliaments. It's this sort of short cycle that doesn't allow for this longer term planning, this actually working with people. Instead of making people afraid of what's going to happen, go in and engage with them and say, what are you afraid of and how can we support you to not be afraid of but that. But there's so much political capital capital oh, to be made by making people afraid. That's Absolutely. what Donald Trump has done. That, that's what that's what political parties tend to do in order to get elected. You know, you're mm. going to get a bad deal out of this other lot. It's going to be horrendous. You know, vote vote for me. Mm. Um, Donald Trump's you know been absolutely uh, you know a, an ultra priest at that. Mm. Mm. I, I think that, I mean. As you say, there are definitely people who have been completely left behind by the globalization agenda. But I think this is also one of the key points when we talk about uh, the declining trust in politics. Uh, for the majority of people, uh, for a, a period of decades until the global financial crisis, there were, we, we knew there were people who were not doing so well out of the globalization agenda, but they were, we were able to sort of keep them in check, if you like. The, the, the elite were able to keep them in check uh, while profits were high and people's lives appeared to be getting better each year and, and all of these things. But as soon as that economy, those, those economic uh, miracles uh, start to end, uh, it's much harder to keep the, the sense that, well, actually, I'm going backwards under this society under check. Uh, and so, well, why do I trust this government that all it's doing is, is more of the same, more of the globalization agenda, more free trade agreements that help somebody else but don't help me? Uh, so I think mm. the, the ideological uncertainty that we've gotten to now is that all right, it was Pauline Hanson and it was on the fringes back in 1996, but now it's Donald Trump and it's become quite mainstream. It's the president of the United States. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a good point. Let's take a quick break there and when we come back, we'll take up that point about um, globalisation and disenfranchised communities because obviously it's a factor in Brexit as well. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Let's just take up uh, Brendan's point, Mark Evans, uh, about uh, declining, you know, about the, 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 the division of benefit, I suppose, from globalisation because the Brexit vote really demonstrated that quite well, didn't it? There was support yeah. for staying in Europe and London, but, but uh, outside of London, particularly in, in, in the north of England, mm. that support really drained away. There were a lot of people who wanted to leave because they didn't feel they were beneficiaries of the, you know, the great global promise of, of European engagement and so forth. Yeah, look, um, geographers um, refer to the difference between shrinking communities and cosmopolitan growth communities. And the argument is that um, if you look at where the Brexit vote was strongest – um, it was in those communities that have um, felt left behind by by, by globalisation. And there are obviously parallels to Australia as well. Um, in, in the survey research that, that, that we've conducted, um, you can identify using CIFA um, those communities with um, the lowest social um, 
income, you know, the, in, the index. And you can identify that there's a very, very strong relationship between um, apathy, alienation, um, and low income, low incomes. So the poorer you are, the less trusting you are, right? Mm. The poorer you are, the more disconnected you are. Makes um, sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of rational in its own way. It's absolutely rational. And obviously the big question is, um, the big question for the Labour Party in Australia and the big question for the Labour Party in the UK was, is it possible um, to develop um, a political program that responds to um, the needs of the cosmopolitan communities and the needs of the shrinking communities, right? Mm. And that's why, of course, historically, you know, the National Party have played that that role more in Australia than the Labour Party because the argument is basically that it's not possible to have um, a coherent social democratic agenda that does both or at least or, or at least the Labour Party found it very, very difficult to do that. And the reason why we saw the, the rise of Corbyn was because he chose to focus on the most disenfranchised, right, rather than on coalition building across classes. Um, mm. At the moment, the Labour Party here in Australia is much more aligned to a social democratic view, right? But the big question is, in order to win going forward, do they need to move more to the left? Or do they leave that terrain to to the emergence potentially of new political parties or to figures of the right um, like Pauline Hanson? Well, they wouldn't want to go down the, the path that Corbyn's gone down of taking the party to the to the left in that sort of old socialist model because... Uh, that's a disaster. I mean, we now see the Lib Dems actually out polling Labor in in a number of opinion polls. They, you know, they're probably lurching toward an election. Over the weekend, we've had the extraordinary development of <laughs> of the Labor Party of the Corbyn forces inside the Labor Party at the British Labor Party conference, moving to abolish the position of deputy leader. Elected, I might just say, by the membership. I mean, both the leader and the deputy leader elected by the membership. But such as the antipathy between Tom Watson, the deputy leader, and Jeremy Corbyn, that the Corbyn forces decided to try and – well, it's been described by various commentators as a drive-by shooting attempt. They literally just tried to you know, sort of disappear him. Uh, which which failed in the end because other front benches uh, you know got got wind of it and uh, and there was a you know mini re- revolution inside. But I just find it astounding that we see British politics in such turmoil. We see the Tories in such disarray over Brexit over a long period of time, and you know we know what where that's led to, and who knows what's going to happen next. Mm. This should be mo- Labor's moment to capitalise, but Corbyn's had this ridiculous kind of bipolar position on on leave and remain over a long period of time. So, so they, they can't capitalise on it and they're more interested in fighting themselves than they are in, in fighting the Tories. Well, all, <laughs> all British political parties, are, uh, apart from the Lib Dems at the moment. The Lib like, Dems um, have a very clear position. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but over the last 10 years, they've been at each other on a whole range of other issues as well historically. So, um, you know, this is about the politics of survival, isn't it, really? Um, well, are they going to survive? With I mean, they, the Labor now has a leader less popular than Michael Foot, uh, and you know that says something. Cause, well, cause, cause going he was, back to that choice, he, you're Foot's right. unpopularity led to Margaret Thatcher. Yeah. Well, to start off, there was a takeover of the Labor Party through constituency Labor parties, as you know, through mm. through the onset of internal party democracy, um, which, in my view, was a good thing. But traditional Labor Party members didn't respond to that. 
There were a lot of Labour Party members that left the Labour Party as a consequence of um, the Blair and the Iraq issue, right? Um, and they could have rejoined and they could have taken their party back. For some reason, they decided not to. There was a failure of active Labour Party citizenship, to be honest. Um, but they made the choice to go to the left, you know, and, under Corbyn, which was a ridiculous electoral gambit because it's impossible to win mm. in England – Right, there, there isn't the politics of social solidarity to support that. Um, in the same way that you're quite right to say that it would be very difficult for Labour to to win in Australia if they went that far to the left. We know that historically um, they have to try to take the centre and they have to build coalitions of support. Mm. But they need a mobilising theme. They need a strong mobilising theme. So Blair, for example, after um, they decided to abolish Clause 4, Part 4 of the Labour Party constitution, which was a commitment to redistribution, decided that um, democratic reform was the, the way forward. Democracy was the way forward. And it was very successful for him. And that's where we saw the emergence of the Scottish Parliaments, mm. uh, you know, the Freedom of Information Act, Human Rights Act, and all that sort of stuff came from that, that, that period. The, the key thing now for, for Labour in Australia is what is their key mobilising theme? Um, and there seems to be – they're trying to strike a balancing act, aren't they, between social justice right, and the traditional commitment to social trust justice and some sort of economic renewal project. Mm. But the economic renewal project isn't particularly clear. It's not well. Not very little is clear in the wake of that uh, that shock mm. loss. Uh, perhaps, mm. uh, perhaps their perhaps their salvation does lie in a. I mean, there, there are people talking about abandoning their strong position on climate change. Uh, perhaps it's the other way around. They ought to articulate it much more clearly and buttress it with all of those economic transformation policies necessary to be able to sell a, uh, a you know a, a credible story about how they they propose to transform Australia and not leave a whole bunch of people behind can i just before we go go to a, another uh, issue that's um, quite strong in australian politics at the moment that is this um parliamentary review we've had we've mentioned Pauline Hanson already in this uh, pod, but um, this parliamentary uh, review of the Australian family law system, mm. uh, Annika, this seems to have kind of almost come out of nowhere in a way because we've had a couple of inquiries before. We've had a parliamentary inquiry in I think 2017, and we've had Australian Law Reform Commission inquiry, uh, which has made some 60 recommendations. The government's sitting on both of these inquiries, and but has launched this other one and done so with. You know, really, it seems at the behest of Pauline Hanson. It seems illogical to start another inquiry when they're still sitting on the results of the other, the previous two. Mm. Um, I mean, family law and the family law courts is probably an easy target um, to divert people's um, uh, interest uh, because there are so many families that are in turmoil who encounter the family law court and an adversarial process such as there is in the family law court is a less than ideal process to deal with what is a emotional social issues um and so it just seems to me that at this point having another inquiry is about window dressing. It's is got this inquiry? I mean, you're you're a lawyer. You, you mm. care about due process and 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 the, the appearance of things is very important. Is this compromised from the start? I mean, she's made some. Hanson's made some very strong comments suggesting that women routinely lie in these um, in these uh, applications for uh, you know apprehended violence orders or whatever they're called because the name does vary state to state and it is state <laughs> law that. But yes. Um, 
Is it is it compromised already as a result of her position and now she's the deputy chair of this inquiry? Well, on the face of it, absolutely. I think there's an easy answer to that. Um, you know, if you've got anybody who's got any particularly strong views one way or the other in charge of an inquiry, it compromises the appearance of that inquiry. I guess that can always be moderated by the way the inquiry is conducted. <laughs> um, well, Kevin but, Andrews, the uh, <laughs> you know, Liberal Conservative, uh, yes. is um, is the chair of said inquiry and he doesn't strike me as, uh, I mean, he's, he's not known for his progressive views in these spaces, so... Um, Yes, I, I don't. I don't hold out a lot of hope for it coming coming up with something that addresses the very real issues that exist in the family law system. Um, and um, and the real issues that exist. I mean, just to be clear, mm. are mostly around, at least in the short term, are around resourcing, aren't they? I mean, the the family law courts are overwhelmed. Uh, yes, there are just inadequate services and underfunding. That's actually one of the key problems, and. It is whereas, one of the key problems, whereas, whereas yes. Hanson's really, you know, pulling a, a more populist lever and saying, you know, there's something wrong with this institution, uh, that, you know, men are being dotted as a class. You know, it does really have that populist feel about it, doesn't it? Yes, I think the, the family law system is under-resourced, but on top of that, um, there's all the under-resourcing of things like legal aid mm. and and those um, those areas of the legal system, which means that... And the non-adversarial parts of the system. Yes, mm. yeah, which means, of course, that um, people are having situations where they are at a disadvantage in that system because they can't pay for representation. Um, but there is a, a, a fundamental problem with trying to resolve, particularly when children are involved, some of those issues in a court system, um, an adversarial court system. And even with the um, compulsory mediation that's required in family law now, um, there's a question about, well, is compulsory mediation ever going to be um, successful because... Part of the process of mediation is both parties coming in with good faith. So there is a real resourcing issue in the family law system, um, but it is mainly uh, – it's already been looked at. We've already got the reports that suggest that there's all these recommendations and and, and we just haven't acted on them. This yeah. this assertion, central assertion she makes that, that women lie about, you know, the threat of violence – uh, in order to, you know, gain custody and deny custody to their, you know, f- former partner. Hanson seems to be suggesting that this is routine. Okay, so that's one thing. We've sort of dealt with that and, and there's plenty of evidence to suggest that that's just not the case. Mm. Um, but there is a different evidentiary test, obviously, a much lower evidentiary bar for the granting of these DVOs or AVOs or whatever they're called um, because the – the, the court is, is essentially, I mean, there's sort of a kind of a, it seems to me they're like an, an injunction in a way there. The court is basically stopping contact for a period of time while the, the process grinds forward. Is that not right? Mm, and I think the issue of focusing on the DVOs when we still have a really big problem with, you know, is it one woman a week dying in domestic violence? Um, it seems to be focusing on the issue of the D- the DVO, AVO, as you said, whatever mm. it's called in whichever jurisdiction you're talking about, um, rather than looking at the broader issue of domestic violence itself, um, it's it's creating a straw man 
that you know let's look over let's look over here and mm. let's instead of looking at the real problem um and everybody's got a story to tell everybody's got a uh, a story to tell where they've they know somebody who might have had an allegation that they believe is you know incorrect against them but everybody's also got a story to tell of the woman or the man for that matter you know domestic violence happens for both genders is um has experienced domestic violence and can't get any relief. Um, the AVO itself is such an imperfect way of um, gaining relief from that. It seems to me that, once again, we're looking at a thing, the, the AVO, DVO question is is one tiny part of a bigger problem that needs to be looked at, and this allegation that people are routinely lying to gain custody of children, etc., is, well, as you said, there's strong evidence to prove that it's just not the case. Mm. So. Mm. Is that the way it feels to you, Brendan, that this is kind of a, like if looking at the politics of it, what, what the government's doing here is, I mean, obviously needs Hanson's two votes to get, get legislation through, um, but it, it's, it also it plays into this thing we started off talking about, you know, the, the trust deficit, um, uh, particularly in, in some quarters of Australian society, that, you know, this lack of trust in the courts uh, and kind of pulling that lever, uh, beating that drum, however you want to put it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think an inquiry is a great way to to canvas opinions that you don't necessarily need to follow through on. Uh, we, <laughs> yes. we we can be we can be talking about you know we can throw out a populist bone or two uh, as a government without actually having to do anything about it. Um, gets Hanson's vote on side potentially in in some key issues in the future, uh, and you know they can they can completely oh we'll, we'll we'll lean on the other reports we've got which tell us to do x mm. y and z rather than the findings of this report well it really does sort of expose that openly doesn't it if you've actually got reports or reviews already done you've got recommendations and you're not acting on them and then you're going to another review i mean we always know that political parties governments go for reviews when they you know for, for political reasons but mm. it's pretty obvious isn't it when you've got Reviews already done. You're not acting on them. You're going to another review that you're, uh, you know, trying to get some political dividend out of it. And it's pretty obvious what the political dividend is here for mm. the government in terms of, uh, you know, carrying favour with Hanson, whose vote they need to get legislation through. I think it's also it's a it's a broader attack um, on advocacy groups as well, um, who they view to be politicised. So that they're using the this area of policy. To make a, a, a political point, and even in the in the session that we had with philanthropy Australia, you, you would have noted the speech by Ned Sazalja, where he basically made it very very clear that they would be investigating the politicisation of certain philanthropic groups to make sure that they stayed out of politics. Yeah, it's really interesting that whole debate about, you know, politics and business. Uh, I think you were talking about it before, Annika, as well. Um, the the government has this, uh, you know, real bee in its bonnet about this at the moment. It's been around for a while, the, the umbrage, because it seems government, governments have always been upset, conservative governments, this coalition government, has long been upset about the lack of kind of muscular support in public debate that they've got from business for things that they've been trying to do for business, like the company tax cuts or like industrial relations reform. And so it really sticks in their craw when when business 
groups, uh, you know, the peak bodies and major companies don't come out in a in a in an obvious way and campaign on those things. But then they might put money into the yes campaign for same sex marriage, and and they'll take a very high profile position on indigenous recognition, as as Qantas and others have done in in the case of both of those things. So um, I think you're, you're right. There's a there's a there's a kind of a sense of you know prosecuting broader political arguments with some of these things than are just the uh, j- you know just the subject of the of the announcement itself mm. well as you know a lot of the the ngos are invo- involved in delivering certain of these services mm-hmm. they do have they are advocacy groups as well they have yes. a, they do have a particular view yeah. on what good public policy and service provision is um, and um, i think they have every right to advocate however this government is not of that view. They believe that that is politicising the sector. Well, Alan Joyce made this really interesting point at the press club during the week, the CEO of um, of Qantas. He just sort of rhetorically you know, proposed, I hope this isn't the case that the government only wants us to speak about things with which they agree. I hope we're not moving yeah. to that. And that, you know, it's a, it's a pretty, mm. pretty alarming idea, that. Look, thanks uh, so much for joining us. It's been a terrific discussion. We could talk on these and other subjects for a long time. So thanks to Annika Ferguson, Brendan McCaffrey and Mark Evans. And uh, I'm Mark Kenny, of course. Thanks for listening uh, to Democracy Sausage and we'll talk to you again next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.